0: I'm Heather Anderson, and this is the FKT Podcast. Today, we're catching up with Cameron Hummels. Cameron is here to share some of his stories from his FKT on the Death Valley's North-South Traverse in February. You know your FKT is going to be unusual when calling poison control is part of pre-trip planning. Hi, Cameron. I'm really happy to have you on the show today. I'm really excited to start talking about this insane FKT that you just did in Death Valley of all places the North-South Traverse, which is about 170 miles, I believe. And you did it unsupported in under four days. Is that right?
1: That is correct. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: I saw this FKT come up and I was just like, I have spent a ton of time in Death Valley and I wanted to do something kind of crazy and cool there. But then I saw this and I was just like, wow. It
1: is wild. It's In some ways, it's really unlike a lot of other FKTs because there's like all these additional constraints tied to it. Whereas oftentimes, you know, they're self-supported or unsupported or fully supported. And this one's like super unsupported in some ways.
0: It's it's kind of bizarre. Yeah. I mean, Death Valley is not a low stakes environment.
1: (laughs) It's true. There's a lot of repercussions if you mess up out there.
0: There are. I'm sure there's a lot of skeletons all over that place from people (laughs) who didn't. So you essentially cut the existing record in half. Is that your goal? Is that your time goal? Uh,
1: Kind of. It just kind of worked out that way previously. So the first person who essentially designed the FKT did it in just under eight days, and then a subsequent attempt did it in seven days. But because of the rules of this like kind of fully unsupported effort, you couldn't have caches, you couldn't have any support, either From other people or like from yourself in advance, like leaving food or water along the way. And there's not a lot of water out there. And so the previous people who had, who had done this traverse had carried all of the water on their back, Mm -hmm. which I didn't want to do that. That's a lot of water. And and it's a snowball effect too, because let's say you can plan to do this in six days. So you carry enough water for six days, but maybe you want to carry a little bit extra just in case it takes you a little bit more time than you anticipated. Of course, now you're carrying more water, so it's going to make you slower. So it's going to take longer. So you need to carry more water and it can very quickly go nonlinear like that. And so my goal was essentially to identify water sources along the route that I could consume along the way. Death Valley is a super dry place and a super hot place. So there's not a lot of water along the way, but by identifying a handful of sources along the way, I got water about every 40 or 45 miles. So I was only carrying water for like one day's stint. And by doing that, it just worked out that there were four stretches of 40 miles or so that I figured I could cover in a day each. And that took me to the finish in in about four days. That's kind of how I settled on four. Yeah, I could have done it in longer, but it just made sense in terms of the logistics to do it that way.
0: That makes total sense, especially when you're in the desert. I mean, your travel is very dictated by water accessibility.
1: Exactly.
0: And exactly. water is a big thing I definitely want to talk about today, not just the <laughs> lack thereof, but what's in the water in Death Valley, because anybody who's spent any time there knows that it is not pristine mountain water. There's... It
1: is not pristine. It is not, you know, we get spoiled both in modern life, just having a faucet everywhere, but mm-hmm. also doing all these efforts in the mountains or whatnot, where there's just like creeks and snow melt. And that is not the way it is in one of the driest places in the world. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah, it sounded like you went out to scout these water sources in advance of your FKT and Mm -hmm. discovered the hard way that there were heavy metals mineralization maybe some other things in there you want to tell me a little bit about that
1: (laughs) yeah so i had originally planned to do this in 2021 i started kind of researching it the year or so prior to that and when i basically identified like oh i'm i'm not i don't want to carry 100 pounds of water on my back for this i'd like to just carry a day's worth. I said, okay, well, I'm going to identify these different seeps and springs along the way. I poured over all sorts of maps to try and identify where water was along the way. And then not finding as many locations as I wanted, I contacted the hydrologist, the guy who works for Death Valley National Park and identifies water and studies the water sources in the park. And I talked to him a little bit about where there might be additional water sources. And he's like, oh, there's seeps throughout the park. You just have to know where to find them. And of course, he knew some of them, but that wasn't really his focus. It was more on like the quality of the water in those places. So then I started reading over some old books. I found a book from 1909. It's called Desert Watering Places in Southwest United States. And it's from the USGS So it's like super legit, but it's a hundred years old. And really the thing is like, most people don't care where water is in the modern day because we have access to drive. You can bring a big tank of water in your Jeep or whatever, and it's not really a concern. But a hundred years ago, finding water was, as you said, it's life or death. And so this old book actually had information in it that I hadn't found anywhere else about kind of these obscure minor water sources around. So I found a few more through that, but ultimately what I ended up doing was just poring over satellite imagery. I went onto Google Maps and I switched to the satellite mode and I started zooming in on different areas of the park looking for vegetation because vegetation needs hydration. And I identified 20, 30 different spots throughout the park that were kind of along the route where there was green, some greenish brownish vegetation. And then I took a series of trips to Death Valley over the intervening period and crawled around in the brush, crawled around in these desert plants looking for any kind of surface water and in a few cases found a puddle or a little tiny creek or something like that. I checked it multiple times to make sure that it was long-lived. It wasn't just remnants from a rainstorm or something like that. Mm -hmm. That was essentially how I identified the water sources that I was going to use for this particular trip. But as part of that, as you said, like mineralization is a concern or heavy metal contamination. So I took a gallon of water from each of eight sources and I brought them back to my house because I wanted to see what effect that would have on my body by consuming a gallon of this water. And of course I used backpacking filter to filter the water, I'm not a dummy. I know Giardia and Cryptosporidium and all that stuff is really bad and I didn't wanna get it. So I used a backpacking filter on all the water sources But even so, even when you're filtering water, you know, if there's weird stuff in there, not just biological stuff, but if it's really high in salt or it's really high in some other weird thing that your body's not accustomed to, it can give you a headache or it can give you a stomach ache or something like that. So I, I sent away a small sample from each of those water sources to a water testing service, the same sort of service that you might use if, let's say, you just bought a new home out in the mountains and it has a a local well that you rely on for your water source, well, that well might have mineralization or something like that. So you you would send your water to one of these sources and they would tell you it's high in boron or mercury or something like that, and you should get it treated. And so I sent water from each of these wild Death Valley sources to this site and they did water testing on it. And they found out that a couple of the sources were like super high in arsenic and reasonably high in uranium of course is like radioactive and not something you generally want to ingest that was definitely that was an issue
0: um (laughs) so now you don't need a headlamp anymore you just that's right i just
1: glow i just (laughs) exactly (laughs) that was an issue and The other thing is the remainders of those gallons of water, even the ones that weren't like super gnarly in terms of the water, like heavy metal content or whatnot, I wanted to see how they affected my body if they gave me a stomachache or whatever. So I drank a gallon for eight days straight. I drank a gallon from a different water source just to see like, oh, is this going to make me feel like crap? Am I going to puke? Like what's going to happen? And it didn't make me, the water didn't make me feel great, but it didn't like for the first eight days, like each day I was like, okay, that was okay. Like I could deal with that in the desert. I'm not like falling over because I'm, you know, it really messed things up. But then the week afterwards, I got really, really sick. I was just constantly nauseous. I actually thought I had COVID because this was in 2021, kind of the mm-hmm. height of COVID and spring of like winter of 2021. And so I got the sickest I've ever been. I had, pretty much constant nausea for like six months. Wow. Um, I went to a bunch of doctors, like gastroenterologists, and they they couldn't figure out what was going on. And I was like, maybe it's this water I drank from Death Valley. And they're like, well, maybe it could be. And I was like, yeah, it doesn't, that, I mean, they seem to correlate here. But in the end, the conclusion was just that I might have some sort of waterborne virus that I'd picked up from the water sources. Because the backpacking filter that I used wasn't small enough to block viruses. It's the pore sizes in the filter are small enough to block like Giardia and mm-hmm. some of these other bacteria, but not the viruses themselves. So I eventually got better and then I decided to go back out there and do it again. But this <laughs> time I used, uh, yeah, not maybe not the wisest decision, <laughs> uh, but I decided to use the filter and then also do chemical treatment like chlorine dioxide drops. There's a popular product that you probably used on one of your various long hikes, Aquamira Drops. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And and I use that alongside the filter and I haven't had any problems. So knock on wood <laughs> yeah. was a couple months ago.
0: So the water sounds like a big adventure in and of itself, the preparation. Oh, yeah. And then Definitely. just while you're out there, but it sounded like you had some other really interesting events along the way that are very unusual. I mean, they, these are things that just happen in the desert, especially like a place like Death Valley. So I watched your videos that you have on YouTube and read your report and you talk about hiking through a haboob. And also oh, yeah. having a close call with a poisonous vent. So, yeah. I mean, I have witnessed the haboob in the desert, but I don't think most of our listeners have. And I've never had a close call with a poisonous gas vent. So yeah. I'm really kind of <laughs> curious about these experiences in Yeah. Mr. FKT.
1: Yeah. So before this, I didn't know. Maybe your listeners are more intelligent than me, but I didn't know what a haboob was. But it's a word that's borrowed from the Arabic language, and it basically means a big like wind-caused wall of sand. Kind of the sort of thing you'd expect if you were watching The Mummy or something like that, where this big wind-driven wall of sand gets picked up in particularly deserty environments. And it makes sense, right? Because if you have super high winds in a desert, there's no vegetation to block that wind. So it really just sweeps through there. And once it encounters any kind of loose particulate, especially fine grain stuff like sand dunes that you might find in the Sahara, or you might find in mesquite dunes or any of the other dunes in Death Valley, it just picks up those sand grains and lofts them up into the air. And then you have this big ridiculous wall of sand that might be coming at you. And that's what happened. There was like a kind of a major wind event that just happened to occur when I was was conducting this FKT, (laughs) 50 to 60 mile an hour, gusts. It was kind of crazy because the morning of it was like fine. And then this thing swept up. And fortunately for me, it was at my back. If it had been in my face, I think it would have been really problematic, but it was at my back. But of course, winds are never just like a nice, constant, even flow. It's like super turbulent and like flinging me from left to the right. It felt like being pushed around by a couple of middle school bullies who are just like shaking you the whole time and of course the terrain is uneven as well because the nature of this fkt is there's no trail even if there were a trail you're not allowed to use a trail you're not allowed to use a road you're just cross-countrying through the desert and so you're stepping over rough terrain i mean that's the nature of cross-country travel as you know yeah it just made everything harder to have this windstorm that lasted the brunt of it lasted like about 12 hours but it was pretty consistent for a few days. That definitely added some additional strain. It wasn't ideal conditions. We'll just say that. It wasn't ideal
0: conditions. (laughs) Definitely not. Luckily, it was at your back.
1: But in some ways, it, it may have helped. So you mentioned this poisonous gas vent. One of the water sources that I was relying on was at a place called Keen Wonder Spring, So this is an old spring near a mine, because almost everything in the valley is named after mines or attempted Mm -hmm. resource extraction in the last couple hundred years. And at Keene Wonder Mine, the water that comes out is associated with a hydrogen sulfide vent. So hydrogen sulfide, you probably heard of, it's the smell associated with rotten eggs or decomposing organic matter. And you think, oh, well that kind of stinks, but whatever. And that's true. But in high enough concentrations, it's like super, super bad. Like it can kill you. It'll Mm -hmm. knock you out and then it'll suffocate you over time. Yeah. That's an added concern. So hydrogen sulfide, the molecule is a little bit heavier than air. And so it sinks to the ground and travels along the ground. And where this vent, this hydrogen sulfide vent was, was coming out of the side of the hillside, as you can imagine, I was trying to cover the distance, each day between water sources and then camp briefly at each of the water sources to like drink a bunch of the water, get some rest, because 170 miles off trail is not something that you can easily do in just like a day, just because the terrain is so slow. And then drink a bunch of water and then leave the next morning and be all full to cover the next 40 miles or so until the next water source. But when you're sleeping next to a hydrogen sulfide vent, and in particular, you're sleeping on the ground where the the hydrogen sulfide is, it's like not a place you want to be. So- I was a bit worried about that. I ended up talking to some of the park rangers about like five people died up here. It turned out that a national park ranger almost died in there. They had yeah. permanent damage to their respiratory system because they went down into a cave that was in that vicinity, and the hydrogen sulfide surrounded them and caused like they had to be rescued. And 20 years later, still have respiratory damage. So I was like, wow. I don't want to have that happen to me. Yeah. So, yeah, that and then as we talked about before, the mercury, the arsenic and the uranium, like I had a list the whole time. My coach made me have a list on my person because, you know, in the middle of an effort, oftentimes your brain kind of doesn't work as well as you'd like it to. And you mm-hmm. make maybe some bad judgment decisions. So I had a list written down of like symptoms for hydrogen sulfide poisoning, and what to do if I encountered those symptoms. And another one that was a list of symptoms associated with acute arsenic poisoning and what to do if I started encountering those. And so I kept checking back with my list, like, have I started experiencing, you know, minor things initially? It's like headache and nausea. Yeah, sure. You're going to experience headache and nausea when you're doing these sorts of events. And then the next thing, it's like bloody nose. Oh yeah, I was getting bloody nose. I mean, it's windy and it's like super dry. Mm And then the next thing's like bloody stool. It's like, oh, okay. So every time I'd have to defecate, I'd be like kind of pouring over stuff, making sure that there was no problems in there. Fortunately, I didn't reach that level of uh, of symptoms for any of the things. Because after that, then it turns to like convulsions and death. And it's like, well, once you get Esculated to convulsions, yeah, it goes, yeah, exactly. It's like blood and stool, convulsions and death. Okay. Well, you know, once you get that level, it's hard to It's, you know, you're kind of past the point of no return. So fortunately I didn't, uh, I didn't encounter that, but.
0: Yeah. On my FKTs and I feel like most people's FKTs, we have to dummy proof our resupply list and maybe, you know, like Mm -hmm. our intended campsites, but dummy proofing symptoms that might kill us. Like that is something I don't think (laughs) is particularly common in the FKT world.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it makes it interesting It took some preparation to, I was like, well, I guess there's some risks involved in this and I'm just going to do what I can. But it's funny because the water source that had all the arsenic, so there are federal levels, maybe you and your listeners know this, but I didn't. The federal government makes drinking water levels for different contaminants called MCL. I think it's maximum contaminant level. I guess it's set by maybe the EPA or something like that. And for arsenic, that level is... I forget the exact value. It's like one part per million or, or point, point 0.1 parts per million, something like that. And anything above that in your water source, you're supposed to not drink because it could cause any number of different health problems. But of course, that number is set by people who are drinking that water chronically, you know, every day. They drink that in the morning, they drink it at night, and they do this day after day, year after year. But I'm not doing that for this water. I'm drinking the water like eight liters in 12 hours. You know, I'm just chugging a bunch of water and then I'm going on to the next place. So it's like a different level of impact on my body than if I were drinking it day after day. So this water source that happened to be five times the arsenic maximum contaminant level set by the federal government, you know, I'm like, well, so I ended up calling a bunch of doctors. They couldn't give me a straight answer. So I called poison control. Cause you know, it's poison control They're, That's what their job is, is to tell you like, Oh, I just drank a bunch of Drano. What do I do? And so, so I called them, and I was like, so I'm, I'm planning this trip where I'm going to be drinking some water that's reasonably high in arsenic. And they're like, "Why are you gonna do that?" And I was, well, <laughs> I was like, "It's kind of complicated. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be traveling through the desert, and there's this one water source, and it's five times the MCL of arsenic." I explained the whole thing, like, "This isn't chronic use of this water. This is just 24 hour period. I'm just gonna drink eight liters." And they were like, "Are you really gonna drink eight liters in 24?" I was like, "Yeah, it's a desert. You know, I gotta drink <laughs> a lot of water." And then I say, "So just level with me. Is this water, is water gonna kill me?" Or is this going to, like, incapacitate me or, or anything like that? I'm not worried about long-term effects, or at least from drinking it over the long-term. And they're like, we cannot advise you drink this water. I was like, no, but I get it. Like, I understand you have to say that, but just, like, level with me. Like, is this really <laughs> bad? And they're like, we cannot advise you drink this water. So I was like, ah. So in the end, I was just like, well, it's probably okay. And it ended up being okay. So...
0: Well, now we know. It, now we you know. know. So there Our you go. Wait, to, I am okay.
1: not a physician. I cannot advocate <laughs> this. I, I do not advise you drink this water. That's my stated <laughs> position. But
0: <laughs> Yes, absolutely. In a similar vein to poison control, not uh-huh. necessarily maybe why you did this, but mm-hmm. I see that you have multiple FKTs and they're all in the desert. And this oh, is obviously the most extreme. What inspires you to go out and do these difficult things in the desert of all places where like oh, yeah. super high stakes environment?
1: I don't know. Death Valley's super cool. You know that. You said you you've spent some time there. It's it gets a bad rap. Everyone's like Death Valley,
0: death, death, death.
1: And that was the other thing is I really didn't want to die on this because how embarrassing <laughs> would that be? Like, everyone, you know. Everyone's like, well, of course he died. What an idiot. Goes into Death <laughs> Valley and does this thing. So I was like, I can't die out there. I don't know. I think Death Valley is super cool. Like it's not just the desert. There's all these mountain ranges. It's the largest park in the contiguous 48 states. Mm-hmm. It's, it's enormous. And it's getting bigger. They keep buying up more and more <laughs> land around it to appropriate for the park. So I don't know. It's funny because I actually spend a lot of time in the mountains, but I haven't actually attempted any mountain FKTs. I was thinking, "Well, oh, I might do one at some point. I haven't done a ton of FKTs. I've done three. I don't know. The desert's awesome. But yeah, I really like climbing and there's not a lot of climbing to be had in the desert. I think over 170 miles, I descended like 7,000 feet and maybe climbed like Five hundred or a thousand feet—it's mm-hmm. that's pretty ridiculously low, considering how far one is covering. I don't know. Unfortunately, I don't have a good answer. I just really like extreme environments, and I really like testing out my body's ability to continue to do the things that my brain is telling it to do, and my body's like, "Oh no, I don't want to do that anymore." That's—I guess—that's my best answer.
0: I think that that's a great answer. I think some people just jive with the desert more than others. Like, I happen to really love the desert. I don't live anywhere near the desert, but I love spending time in the desert. And yeah, I've climbed a lot of the peaks in Death Valley. And every time I'm there, I'm like, it'd be really cool to circumnavigate this place. And I'm like, that's a really dumb idea. And then I'm like, but it would be really cool. You You should go
1: for it. I've been trying to design other kind of routes throughout the park. And so have others. Jason Hardrath, famous Jason Hardrath of, of 100 plus FKTs now. He designed a really cool route that he defined as rim to rim to rim. You know, kind of a piggyback on the whole Grand Canyon effort, but going from Telescope Peak in the highest peak in the park, but also the Panamint Mountains at 11,000 feet down to Badwater Basin, which is below sea level, and then up to Dante's View on the east side in the uh, Funeral Mountains, Mm -hmm. and then back and most of it's off trail. That's much more grueling than rim to rim to rim, but also cold. And I just think it's cool that people are being creative about what routes can be done there instead of just sticking to, oh, this trail is defined. This trail is defined. There's very few trails in the park. So when you're doing these efforts, you get to be super creative. And the other thing is the traverse that I did from the north to to the southern part of the park, where it's going through the center of, roughly the center of the Death Valley Wash the whole way, A lot of places, if you do that, that level of cross country travel, it's going to be really problematic because of brush. In the way. And yes, there's some brush on the park, but because it's so dry and because there's so few water sources, you can travel across that without getting shredded by buckthorn or yucca or many of the other kind of plants that you might find in other. Manzanita. Just thinking, I live in Los Angeles area in Pasadena, so I'm thinking of the kind of desert shrubs that I encounter oh, yeah. in the mountains here in the San Gabriels. And it it sucks. I mean, it's it, yes. the thing that defines that terrain is this chaparral vegetation. Whereas in Death Valley, there's not enough vegetation to really tear that up. So you're really defined by the slot canyons, by the nature of the terrain from a geological perspective. But yeah, you can define your own route in tons of different ways. I just think that's super cool. I'm excited to see other people defining new routes or going for this one too. You should give it a shot. (laughs) You should go for the overall FKT, of which I know you have several overall FKTs, but I don't think there's been a successful completion by a woman of the Death Valley Traverse either. So,
0: Yeah, maybe. I I need to... uh... Maybe find out a little bit more about drinking uranium and arsenic. <laughs> maybe let me see how you're doing a few years down the road. <laughs> yeah, that's right. See if I
1: have any developmental right, developmental yeah. issues.
0: <laughs> yeah, no. Death Valley is a really cool place. I definitely hear what you're saying about the vegetation for sure. I've done some off trail peaks in the Anza Borrega, and it's like absolutely mm. horrible. And mm-hmm. like Death oh, Valley, yeah. it's wonderful. Like yes, it's there's wonderful. a plant here. I will walk around it. Like, I will go no around. Big it. <laughs> <laughs> no big deal. No big deal. So one of the things I also noticed when I was reading about your FKT and things like that was the classic storyline with the arc and the climax right at the end, like your FKT followed that like perfectly, you know, your last (laughs) 24 hours, you had hallucinations, you were concerned about your like electronics dying, possibly not even be able to document what you just done, you were sick. It just seemed like everything was coming together. And so like, And walk us through that last 24 hours.
1: Yeah. So as I described before, these water sources were just kind of happenstance. They happen to be about every 40 miles. And you're right. It did ramp up in difficulty. I knew the last day was going to be the hardest day. And I was always fearful of that. You know, I was like really anxious about going into this. I don't know if you get this way before long efforts, whether they're competitive or not. But I always get a little bit, you know, in the week before I start getting kind of antsy in my pantsy because I'm so anxious about oh how is this going to go not like am I going to die although I guess that was kind of a concern too but in general just like oh am I going to live up to the expectations that I have set for myself for this particular effort so the first day it was like 35 40 miles that I covered to get to the water source and then the second day it was about the same and the third day it was about the same but the fourth day the fourth day the water source just because this is how it's laid out. The water source was about just under 50 miles away that I had to cover. But by the time you get to the 50 mile mark, which is a place called Saratoga Springs, it's actually a beautiful site. Have you been to Saratoga Springs mm-hmm. before in the southern part of the park? Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's so out of out of the ordinary because it's this like wetland area. And there's all these frogs right. croaking and birds. And it's a wetland area in like the driest place in the United States. Exactly, but, yeah. So that was like my... Oasis in the desert. I was like, I gotta make it to this, but I had 50 miles to cover to that, and 50 very non-trivial miles. 50 miles covering Badwater Basin for the mm-hmm. most part, which is you know anywhere from salt marsh when there's water running to just dry. I was hoping that it was going to be dry because when it's dry crystal, you just kind of head over this salt plain and it's like being on a road, but it was not that way. Exactly. Of course, not. Of course it's it not. It was February because of course it'd be that way probably in July, but you don't want to do this in July because it's 135 degrees out there. So the highs I was experiencing were just over hundred, but because it's February, there's been water that's percolating down into the basin. And so it's kind of this marsh that you'd sink into a few inches each step that you take, which makes for pretty slow going. So it's 50 miles to that water source. And then it's only 10 miles to the finish. So of course, you're not going to get to that water source and then camp for the night and then get up early the next morning and finish your thing. You're just going to push through because it's right. You know, 10 miles. miles—it's just 10 miles. So I made really slow progress that final day. The windstorm was still howling away. I was trying to cover, I think, 57 miles in a 24-hour period to be able to finish by the time that I had set for myself this kind of four-day goal, which admittedly is totally arbitrary. The FKT at that point was just under seven days, and I was like almost cutting it in half. But on the other hand, what I realized that (laughs) night is I planned on this taking roughly four days, and all my electronics were also set to like run out of juice at the end of this four days, I realized at midnight that night with only nine and a half hours to go and still like 25, 30 miles to cover in the dark, that my GPS device, the Garmin inReach, which is also like your SOS device or whatnot, that was set to run out of juice an hour and a half or two hours after my goal time. So it's not like i could just say screw it i'll just be a few hours later i'll roll in and i won't make my four hour arbitrary goal but i'll just do it in four and a half days or whatever and still claim the fkt but if i didn't have the batteries to power my garmin inreach that had a continuous gps track for the fkt then it was like null and void that i'd done this fkt at all because i didn't have proof that i had actually completed one continuous stretch and so that was running low, my phone was running low, my headlamp was running low, something that you want to be able to work when you're in the middle mm-hmm. of the desert and it's dark out. So yeah, I basically went into freak out mode, but it's at that point well, like what else can you do? Just go faster. So, so I'm <laughs> like, I'm like, okay. Okay, get into a rhythm. Go go faster. And as you said, I started getting weird hallucinations. And I've had hallucinations from sleep deprivation and fatigue before. So I was like, knew what to expect. But this was much more pronounced than I'd had in the past. I started getting auditory hallucinations. I was hearing things. And I actually got olfactory hallucinations where I started smelling things like phantom smells. Mm. Um, I started smelling chlorine. And I thought, I, was, I convinced myself that I had actually spilled my chlorine dioxide pu- water purification drops in my pack because it was such an intense odor of chlorine. And of course I hadn't. It was just my brain basically telling me, hey, hey, jerk, knock it off. You're, you're, this is too much. Why don't we stop and take a rest? And I was like, no, battery's going battery's gonna to run out. Got to finish. Don't want to be a failure in front of friends and family. Um, because I also had my Garmin inReach and I'd Perhaps mistakenly told friends and family that I was making this attempt, and so they were following along on my breadcrumbs that were being broadcast from my Garmin in reach to a satellite map. And so friends and family are watching me, and I don't want to—you know, you don't want to bail in front of your friends and family. <laughs> and what's more, to make it even worse, I had told a friend about this. She works for the LA Times, and she had been like, "Oh, that's a great idea for a story. I'll tell my editor." And she told her editor, and her editor is like, "Yeah, make a story." And so Lila was like, Hey, can I write this story about you? And I was like, yeah, uh, I guess if you, sure, why not? And I was like, that sounds, that, that could be cool. But I, I'd agreed. I'd agreed to meet her at the finish line when I'm at my absolute worst, right? Like I just, I agreed to meet her at the finish line and have an interview with her and then have her like take pictures of me. And so I've been hallucinating all night. So of course, like I'm doing this and I'm like, I have to finish. If I don't finish, like, first of all, I just want to finish, but I have to finish. If I don't finish, not only are friends and family going to know that I'm like this failure, but there's going to be an LA Times news article about how I didn't do this. Th- like, oh, look at this loser. He didn't, he couldn't even walk across Death Valley and it'll be in like print. So it was more motivation to like continue through this challenging time. But yeah, in the end, I got to that water source at Sunrise. And I only had about an hour and a half to reach my, again, arbitrary four-day deadline, but also non-arbitrary because all my batteries were going to run out. And then I wasn't mm-hmm. going to have proof that I'd completed it. And I needed to cover like nine or 10 miles to get to the finish. And of course, like nine miles in an hour and a half. Like that's a 10 minutes per mile pace, which is not a particularly fast running pace. But at the end of all this, it's kind of hard. So it's so <laughs> it's fast enough, right? So <laughs> as soon as the sun rose, my brain turned on. It was like getting a third wind, a fourth wind, whatever, some... some number of wins. <laughs> and my pack was at an all-time low because I'd consumed all my food. I consumed all my water. And it only weighed like my base weight was like nine pounds. And the the terrain got really more consolidated. So I could you could take a step without like sinking and you're, you know, walking in loose sand is like the worst. Right. So but this was more consolidated. And I took a couple jog steps and I was like, oh look. That feels okay. And so I went for it, and I ran the remaining nine miles at like ten minute per mile pace, and I got there just six minutes before my four day, again, arbitrary, but my four day goal. And I was like super, super psyched. And then they <laughs> interviewed me and took like the worst photographs that have ever been taken <laughs> of me in my life and put them on the in an l a Times article. I wasn't very uh, cogent through this conversation with the reporter, but here I am. I survived. yeah, it was it was pretty funny. Yeah. And then I and then I, I was so exhausted I couldn't drive. And of course at the end of this thing, you know, in the southeastern tip of Death Valley, there's nothing around. There's an OHV area with people like setting off fireworks and shooting guns and stuff. And so I napped with full air conditioning on in my car for half an hour. So I was like rested enough that I could drive to the nearest town. And I drove to the nearest town. I ordered an extra large pizza. I got a hotel room, even though my house was like two and a half hours away. So in all of this, <laughs> I should just drive home. Like My girlfriend's like, why didn't you just drive home? I was like, because I was going to crash the car. I was so right. exhausted. So I ate an extra large pizza and then I slept for 14 hours and it was glorious.
0: Driving after something <laughs> like that, definitely not a good idea. I once tried to drive home from a race, obviously not at this level but i had been awake for 40 some odd oh, hours no that i mean that and seems legit i got enough. in the car and i thought the car was moving it was not moving yet it was but <laughs> i thought i was moving down the road and i was like i should probably just take a nap <laughs> Before I tried it, like, yeah,
1: this, yeah, you know? it's kind of amazing what exhaustion and fatigue can do to your brain and yeah. how you really want to address that. And the weird experiences that we all have when it's super low, whether it's hallucinations or whether it's just like strange cravings or walking into bushes, the brain yeah. is a complex entity and we need to respect it for what for it sure. is.
0: for sure absolutely well thank you so much for coming on here and sharing some of this adventure with us yeah it was
1: my pleasure it was a wild time and i encourage other people to go for it Um, On this FKT and other FKTs, but yeah, people should check this out. The desert's awesome. And I'm sure people can probably beat it. I'm a strong athlete, but I'm not like a pro or anything. People can probably beat it, but I can tell you that it's going to be hard. So take it seriously if you do go for it and make sure that you're not allergic to arsenic or something like that. Yeah, I
0: think if anything, I think your story definitely lets people know Death Valley is an amazing place, but it's very high stakes. (laughs) It's
1: high stakes. That's right.
0: Take it seriously. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you again.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thanks, Cameron, for coming on the show. You can check out all of his FKTs on the website, fastestknowntime.com. You can also follow him on Instagram at chummels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, this is Heather on the FKT Podcast.